All right. If you got a Bible this morning, I want to have you open to Luke chapter 14. And, and so this morning, we're actually two weeks into a series called The Way of a Disciple. And, and what we're doing is we're, we're, we're spending a few weeks refocusing, re-engaging this thing of discipleship biblically. We, we, for many years at our church, we've, we've, man, we've had a discipleship ministry. We talk about discipleship a lot. We, we engage in discipling others. We, we want to see fruit that's generational in our church. We, we believe that there's a very specific uh, understanding biblically of what discipleship is and what it's not. And, and discipleship is one of those words, if you use it in the culture of Christianity, you get all kind of different uh, perspectives on, on what is a disciple. Some, some people think that discipleship is, is nothing more than, than maybe a small group of people that gather for accountability and encouragement, and, and that's a good thing. Gathering for accountability and encouragement is a really good thing, but is that discipleship? Other people would say, well, discipleship is a, a, a series of lessons or a, a curriculum that we work through for a, a number of weeks or months, and then uh, they get to, to the completion of that, and they, they would say, well, I've finished discipleship and, and things like that. So, man, what we're trying to do is take the Bible and say, okay, let's re-study, re-examine this subject biblically and, and make sure that we're focused in on what the Bible says discipleship is. What, what we're called to do as a local church in the ministry of discipleship. And so, and so last week, we began this series, and, and you know, I told you last week, I gave you a bunch of stats for nerds, but the word disciple or some variation of that is used almost 300 times in the Bible. In the Old Testament, last week, we saw that it's only used once, in Old Testament in the sense of like, you know, in your Bible where it says Old Testament, and that'll, that statement will make sense in a minute. In just, a, in just a minute, but, but Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 16 is the only instance in the Old Testament of the, of the usage of the word disciple, and God was preparing Isaiah and the nation of Israel for the upcoming Babylonian captivity. And, and, God, and God knew that Israel was backslidden, but God still had a remnant of people that, that wanted to walk with him and that wanted to hear his word, and, and they were right in a culture that was wrong, okay? And there, there's always a remnant, and I'm, I'm thankful for that. So what that teaches me is that no matter how, the, how bad the world gets, or even how bad the culture of Christianity gets, there's always a remnant that just want to stay true to God. So let's be that remnant, right? That, that, that's the goal. We want to be that remnant. And so, and so we looked at Isaiah, we looked at that remnant, and we said, what can we learn from, disciples, from a discipleship standpoint? And we learned four things last week, and I, I want to just give you those again as a reminder. Number one, disciples... Biblical disciples are receptive to God's words. And we saw that Isaiah was ready to receive God's word when God revealed it to him. Isaiah 8 and verse 11 says, The Lord spake thus to me with a strong hand, and he instructed me. And one of the characteristics that you see all the way through the Bible is that a disciple of Christ is ready to receive the words of Christ, okay? And we made this really sharp contrast last week that you can be and I can be a believer in Christ for salvation, but not necessarily be a disciple of Christ as a follower, okay? And we're going to get more into that today, but there is a difference between a believer in Christ and a disciple of Christ. And one of the key differences is that a biblical disciple receives God's Word. He has an ear ready to hear God's words. And, and so I hope last week that God, man, God showed us that. And I hope today you walked in saying, hey, I'm ready. I want to hear from God today. That, that, makes, that makes it so much easier for, 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 for all of us when we're ready to hear what God has to say. Secondly, we learned last week from, from Isaiah's example that Isaiah had a right walk with God. So not only was he receptive to God's words, but, but God told him, hey, don't walk in the way of this people. And, and there was this opposing enemy that was coming in to, to take over the land and, and to take Israel captive. And God warned Isaiah, don't make a confederacy with, with the enemy. Don't, don't go along just to get along. As a matter of fact, your walk has to be in sharp contrast to a backslid nation, and it has to be in sharp contrast to an enemy that wants to conquer you. And, and so for us, we learned last week if we're going to be a disciple of Christ, we have to have a right walk, 
And that walk that we have should every day, every week, every month, every year, it should be bringing us closer to Christ. If, if we're walking the right direction, we're, we're walking toward Christ, we're following Christ. But, but if we're not careful, we can be a believer in Christ and actually be far from Christ. You say, well, I'm saved. Man, praise God for that. But, but are you right in your walk with God? That, that's the question. And, and our guys that go out and, and, and evangelize and they, they go out to share the gospel and witness to people, one of, the, one of the things that they hear almost weekly is people that have a clear salvation testimony but aren't walking with Christ. They know they're saved, but man, their relationship with God is not what it needs to be. They're not connected to a body. They're not intimate with God in His Word. They don't have a prayer life. Okay, listen, if you don't have any communication with God outside of receiving His free gift of salvation, you don't have a right relationship with God. And and so it's possible to be be a believer in Christ and not have a a heart to follow Christ. And and man, my, my goal, and I think the Bible's goal, is to help us understand that our walk should be bringing us closer to Christ every week, every month, every year. I ought to be closer in my relationship with Christ now than when I got saved in 1997. I ought to be more intimate with Christ and know Him more. Listen, if you've been married, you understand this. You ought to be more intimate and personal and real in your marriage relationship now than when you first got married. Man, you've learned some things. You've experienced some things, right? You learned that she's right like 99% of the time. You didn't know that when you got married. But now you do. And if you didn't know that, I'm trying to help you. So my wife is also writing that down and we'll use that later in the conversation. <laughs> and it's recorded. Yeah, she'll time she'll timestamp this in the sermon. Man, we gotta have a right walk with God. And, and if we don't have a walk with God, we're truly walking away from God. We don't we're not walking with him. Thirdly, we saw we saw that biblical disciples reverence God's person. And, and remember, there's this enemy that's about to conquer Israel and take them captive, and that would be a fearful thing. And yet God says, listen, don't let Nebuchadnezzar be your fear, or captivity be your fear, your dread. Actually, fear the Lord. Let the Lord be your fear. Let the Lord be your dread. And if you fear Him right and reverence Him right, you don't have to worry about anything else. And, and that gives me comfort. Because, because he says in the passage that, that God will be a sanctuary for Isaiah and for the remnant. Now, now we studied last week that, that man, the, the, the place where Israel worshipped God was about to be ransacked. It was about to be destroyed. And yet, God promises his remnant, listen, if you'll fear me, if you'll love me, if you'll dread me, I'll be a sanctuary for you. Whether or not there's a physical building at all, it, it doesn't matter. Because, because it's about a relationship, not just being religious, right? And we learned that last week. And so biblical disciples actually reverence God's person, and they know that they can worship Him anywhere. Okay, and then number four, biblical disciples reproduce disciples. And, and we saw the verse, we finally got to like Isaiah 8 and verse 16, where God tells Isaiah, bind up the testimony and seal the law among my disciples. And, and so when we talk about discipleship, we have to understand that we have been given stewardship of God's written words. The testimony all through Scripture points back to the law, the, the commandments that God wrote, and then later Moses had to write. So, so these, these words were, were received by inspiration, but then they were inscriptured and they were to be stewarded properly. And so discipleship is really taking God's words that we've received and stewarding them to other people. That's what discipleship is. And if you're a part of discipleship in this church, as much as it's about a relationship, it's bigger than that. It's about your relationship with God, yes. It's about your relationship with that discipler, yes. It's about your walk with God, yes. But at the end of the day, it's what do you do with God's words? What have you been given and who are you giving them to? And, and that's critical. So now we're in Luke 14. That, that's the re-preach. I'll get to the real preach now. I had to be kind of rewind, as uh, Alan Shelby says. So I just, you know, whatever. All right, so this morning, Luke 14. And, and let me ask you a question as we get into this text this morning. So, so I got to think about this. 
This morning, we're talking about the worth of a disciple. And so I want to ask you a question this morning. I want you to think about it for a second. What is the most expensive thing that you've ever bought? What is the most expensive thing that you've ever bought? Don't answer out loud, but let me give you some options. Most of us, if we, if we did the analysis, right, and, and said, okay, uh, man, I've spent a lot of money in a lot of places. What is it that I've spent the most money? Most of us probably would say, not all of us, but most of us would probably say, man, our home. Okay, we spend a lot of money. And by the way, if you buy a house right now, you're going to spend a lot of money. Alex Mullins, the realtor in the house, says amen, and he's going to get a nice commission off of that. He wants you to spend a lot of money. Okay, but, but listen, if you spend money on a home, you have made a major, major, major investment, right? It's, it's a lot of money. And, and usually, if you're like me, you don't have that much cash laying around. So what you do is you get this thing called a mortgage, right, where they, where they give you uh, money, but they charge you a percentage, and then you, you decide whether you're going to spend 15 years or 30 years to pay that thing off, right? And, and it stings, man, to spend that much money. But can I just tell you, by getting a mortgage, it actually makes the sting a little, a little easier, right? Like if you had to drop 100 grand cash, but then you, compared to like $500 a month, I know you can't buy, I'm just using ra- random numbers, but but, 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 but shelling out 100 grand in cash or shelling out five or $600 a month, well, one's a lot easier than the other, right? One's a lot easier. And, and by the way, you know, if you have a mortgage like me, you don't technically own it just yet. The bank kind of owns it till you pay it off, right? And, and so that's how it works. So most of us probably would say, man, the house is probably the most important thing, but we're still paying that off. We're, we're not, we, didn't, we didn't pay cash in hand for that college. Let's talk about college for a second. Some of you young people, man, I, I hate it for you uh, because, man, college only gets more. They say the average college education for four years now is a hundred to 140,000, and many times that doesn't include books, uh, you know, uh, transportation, fees, all those different things. I mean, four years of college, and depending on if you're in-state or out-of-state, you're looking at a hundred grand plus, and who's paying cash for that? Like, like this dude ain't. I ain't got it, man. That's a lot of money. What's the most expensive thing you've ever bought, just paid outright cash for? Maybe it was an automobile. Now, some of you I know, man, just carry it around like front pocket money, and you could go buy a new car. Do you know the average cost of a new car this year? Average cost, top across the board. Take a take a take a guess. Forty-eight thousand dollars. That's right. It starts with T Toyota, okay? Uh, so that, that'll get you like a low-grade Toyota right there. Brand new car, average price is $48,000, and they say that that's 30% higher than last year. I, I don't know about you, but I'm not walking into the Toyota dealership with $48,000 in cash. Now, if you need a good used Toyota, I'm your man, all right? I just want, I, I just want you to know... I just want you to know if you don't have 48 grand, but you got maybe eight to 10 grand, I might could help you. I don't know. <laughs> huh? <laughs> That's, my wife is also taking notes of this. Oh, yeah. See, what I find out is, what I find out is, like, when I'm not home, she has conversations about our fleet, and she tells people that everything is for sale. And, <laughs> And I don't, I don't think that's been established. <laughs> Everything, and her pricing structure and mine are, are a little bit different. All right, here's, here's one that's, that's probably more real for us. If you're married, you, especially guys, you know this one, right? The engagement ring. Okay, the engagement ring. All right, so here's the, here's the rule of thumb. And for young dudes, let me just go ahead and break the bad news to you. The rule of thumb is, for the engagement ring, it's two months' salary. It needs to be worth two months' salary, and by the way, if, you, if you're smart, then you're going to pay attention and say, it's better, it's better to buy that ring when you're young and dumb and broke <laughs> than when you get into your career. That's free advice, okay? <laughs> that's, that's horrible, isn't it? It's this money talk. It gets everybody upset, okay? And that's truly probably something that you just paid out right cash for. You know what I'm saying? Like, you just, you just dropped the coin on that. And, uh, and it hurt, right? I mean, it hurt big time. And, and, and it, hurts, it hurts for us to let go of the cash. It hurts for us to pay upfront, outright, big money for, for big things because that stuff's hard to come by, especially in our economy. I mean, it's hard to come by. 
Cash is hard to come by. It's even harder to let go of. And, and if there is no payment option or umf, you know, uh, mortgage situation or payment plan, if it's got to be upfront or not at all, well, man, that hurts the most. That hurts the most. And we really have to dig down and say, is this worth what I'm about to pay for it? And so out of all of those things that most of us have bought, a home, a college, you know, cars, engagement ring, and other things, how many of those purchases have you regretted? How many of you have, have made a big purchase only to realize later, ah, man, that may not have been the best, or I may not have got my money's worth, or hey, you know what, I've actually got my money's worth and more. You know, if you buy a home, that, that thing's great, it can fall apart, it can break, but it can also be used to raise a family, right? You can get a degree, and listen, that degree can be an open door of opportunity for you to earn income, but that degree can also be a financial burden for many years, right? Student loan debt, things like that. And, and again, the issue is not whether that's right or wrong. I'm just saying, man, have you, made a, have you, have you bought something, paid the price, and then, and then regretted it? Or did you pay the price and say, you know what, it was only worth that and, and so much more? So much more. Well, when we get to Luke 14, I'll quit meddling and get to preaching now. We get to Luke chapter 14, I, I do want you to understand that we're still kind of in the Old Testament. So what I told you last week about, about the word disciple being only in the Old Testament one time, that was kind of true. But in Luke 14, we're still in the Old Testament dispensationally. What I mean by that is Jesus Christ has not, not yet been crucified on the cross. Hebrews chapter 9 tells us that Christ is the mediator of the New Testament in his blood. And so the New Testament doesn't actually begin until Christ shed his blood on the cross of Calvary. And so when we're in Luke 14, again, I'm not trying to correct anything that was missaid last week, but, but dispensationally, even though we're in the New Testament, we're still in an Old Testament economy. And so in Luke chapter 14, I want to read verses 25 to 33. Let's get the context. We'll get your notes and then we'll get up out of here. Let's look at this passage that we'll focus on today. Verse 25. This is the passage we're going to study this morning. It says in verse 25, there, were, there went great multitudes with him. And he turned and he said to them, if any man come to me and hate not his father and his mother and his wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and, and his own life also, he cannot be my what? Disciple. And again, man, we're, we're still kind of in the Old Testament economy. Even though you're in the New Testament, God is still using this word disciple he says, Whatsoever, whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be, by, be my what? Disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he had sufficient to finish it? Lest haply, after he hath laid the foundation, is not able to finish it, and all that behold begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build, but he was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first, and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000, or else while the other is a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath cannot be my, what? Disciple. Let's pray and, and ask God to give us what we need today. Father, we need you this morning. I need you. Lord, I pray as we study this passage, God, help us to see the cost. Man, and count the cost and see the worth of what, it, what it's going to take to be a disciple. But, but Lord, the payment is high, but man, the worth is, is so much more. And so God, help us to see it through your word and, and give us wisdom as only you can. And we ask it in Christ's name, amen. So, so the context of Luke 14, it's important to understand what's going on in this chapter. And if, if we had the time and, and we were to go back earlier in this chapter, it begins with Jesus being invited to eat at one of the chief Pharisees' house. Now, if you know anything about the Pharisees in the New Testament, these dudes were always critical of Christ. They were always trying to trap him in his words. They were always trying to create a scenario to make him look bad. And so this, this Pharisee has invited him in, and there's a multitude of people there. As a matter of fact, uh, there's so many people there, that, 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 and apparently this is such a big house, that people are choosing the best rooms for themselves. It's like when we have thanksmas. And, and, and you get in the head of the line. You know what I'm talking about? Everybody's like, well, I don't, I don't get in the head of the line. I know the teens don't because we don't let them. 
But, but if we would let them, they would be at the head of the line. They would exalt themselves to the very front of the line, and they would get those, those little precious burnt ends that Brian Call makes. And they melt in your mouth like butter. You know what I'm talking about right now? Everybody, everybody with me? If we're not careful, those people would just exalt themselves, and, and they would put themselves in a position of, 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 of first, being in first place, and then all of us scrubs in the back of the line, we, we wouldn't get those tasty treats. And so, man, that's what's happening in the Pharisee's house. These, this multitude of people, they exalted themselves. They, they took the best spots at the table. And Jesus, after he sees what's happening, he begins to speak in a parable to, to these people. And, and remember, Luke Chapter 8 and verse 10 tells us that when Christ spoke in parables, he was actually trying to hide truth from people that did not want to receive it. Luke chapter 8 and verse 10 tells us, he's talking to his disciples, he says, unto you is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to others in parables, that seeing they might not see, and hearing they might not understand. So, so God is in this Pharisee's house. He sees what's going on. It's this, this dialogue around the dinner table, if you will. He sees that these dudes are exalting themselves, and he speaks a parable to them because they're not interested in hearing his words. So he begins to speak hiding truth from them. Then he speaks a parable in verses 12 and 14 through 14 to the chief Pharisee that invited him. And, and again, man, when Christ is speaking in parables... He's actually speaking to hide truth that those that don't want to hear aren't going to hear. That's what he does. And then you work through this story, and in verse 15, one dude answers, answers Christ, and he says, hey, blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. And man, from 16 to 24, and again, I'm just paraphrasing this, Jesus gives this dude an exhaustive explanation of a master that's going to create a great supper. It's interesting that he's in a house with a great supper, and yet he's telling the story of a greater master that's going to have a greater supper, and he's going to invite guests, and the first guests that he invites, they're too busy to come. And the master of the house gets upset with that, and the master of the house sends his servants, his servant into the streets and into the highways, and to the hedges, and he says, just bring anybody to this, to this supper that's willing to come, because I want my house full. And listen, if you've studied that passage, you already know, man, that the nation of Israel rejected what God made available to them. They rejected his offer of salvation. They rejected the opportunity to sit at him with his at, at his table, and so listen, because of their rejection, by the way, there are three people that rejected uh, in that story, three times that Israel rejected Christ, and then, and then he tells his servant, who is a picture of the Holy Spirit, listen, go out and get the, bland, the blind and the maimed and the halt, the feeble, and just see who's willing to come so that my house can be full. Well, that's you and me. That's you and me, man. You just got invited to a free meal. A free banquet that someone else prepared to sit at the king's table. And man, that's what happens in the gospel, man. The gospel came to the Gentiles. And listen, because of that, because of that, man, we, we have the opportunity to partake in what God has prepared for us. You say, why is all this important? Because it's on the heels of this conversation that the great multitudes begin to follow him. Because, because just like any any good church or any good, you know, people group, free food is a draw, right? You're saying I can come to the supper for free and eat all I want? Yes. Well, all of a sudden, a multitude of people began to follow him out of this Pharisee's house, and they began to follow him because, hey, that'll get the crowd to come. It's this group of people that he turns around and he begins to tell this is what it's going to cost to be my disciple. You see, and it's in your notes. Can I just tell you that, that salvation is a lot like that? Salvation is something that somebody else prepared for you. Jesus Christ prepared it. Prepared it. You've been invited to the feast. He is the bread of life. 
And Christ wants his house full. And all we are in this room, if you're saved, is just beggars who found the bread of life in Jesus Christ. That's all we are. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful somebody told me that there was a feast prepared. And so listen, get this key in your notes. Concerning God's house being filled, Christ wants everyone to come. He wants everyone to come. Man, salvation is free. And it's available to everyone. But man, listen, can I just tell you that God also has a word to that multitude that begins to to follow him because of this offer of this, this feast and this kingdom concerning those that are called to be disciples. Christ wants those who have counted the cost. You see, there's a cost to discipleship. Salvation is free. You can partake of the bread of life free. It's a free gift. Someone else purchased it. Someone else provided it. But if you're going to follow Christ after receiving Christ, and it's going to cost something. It actually is going to cost a lot. As we work through that passage, the cost of discipleship is actually so high that many, many people aren't willing to pay it. It's so high that few people are willing to go all the way. Now listen, there is a doctrinal application of this passage of Scripture because, man, when you read this passage, it talks about hating your father and mother and, and laying down your life and taking up your cross. And, and listen, many times we, we, we automatically spiritualize that and say, well, well, what that really means is this. And then we explain away a literal understanding of that passage. Can I just tell you, that doctrinally there is going to be a time where literally this application of this scripture is going to be significant. It has to be literal. You can't spiritualize it. Doctrinally, it points forward to the future time of tribulation. Look at Matthew chapter 10, for example, and I want to just show you that God says for a group of people that the cost of discipleship is going to be so high that literally their physical life may be required. Now, you haven't had to pay that price. And although it's not required yet, and it, it's a consideration that we all have to make. Look at Matthew 10, verse 34. Think not that I'm come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a what? A sword. For I'm come to set a man at variance against his father, against his mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it. And he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Real easy to say, hey, that's just spiritual. Well, that's not, that's not what it says. It doesn't say it's just spiritual. God's dealing with a group of disciples that he's commissioning to send out with a kingdom message. And he's saying, it's probably going to cost you your life. Mark chapter 13, another example. He says, take heed to yourselves. They shall deliver you up into the councils and the synagogues and be beaten. And you shall be brought before rulers and kings for my name's sake, for a testimony against them. And the gospel must first be published among all nations. But when they shall lead you and deliver you up, take no thought beforehand what you speak, neither do you premeditate, but whatsoever shall be given you in that hour That shall you speak, for it is not you that speak, but the Holy Ghost. Now the brother shall betray the brother to death, and the father the son, and the implication is to death, and the children shall rise up against their parents and shall cause them to be put to what? Death. Listen, there's a literal application to a literal audience for a literal, literal purpose and a literal time. You can't explain that away, man. There are going to be people that truly, Jews in the trib, that are going to have to count the cost of following Christ even to the death because their own family is going to sell them out to the Antichrist. Now, now you think you got it bad. Man, can you, can you imagine your mom, your dad, selling you out to the Antichrist because you want to follow Christ and be a disciple of Christ? And you're sold out to your death. God tells us this is going to happen. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11, it says, They overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they love not their lives unto the what? 
Don't spiritualize that, man. There's a literal application of that. There are going to be people. And we have, we have people that, that, you know, the publishing the voice of the martyrs and things like that, man, for sure. People have done that throughout Christianity. But there's coming a time, literally, where that will be what's required. To prove out your seriousness and following God, it will cost you your own life. Okay, so, so now what, what do we take away from this passage in Luke 14? Man, is it going to cost us our physical life or is there a, a devotional application? Well, well, can I just tell you that God uses the word disciple in Luke 14 just like he uses in other places for born-again believers in the church. And so there is a dual application of the, of the word disciple And I think as we look at this passage, even though we know the doctrinal position, we have to understand the devotional consideration. And here's my point. We can learn, knowing that in a time future, it will cause people literally their life to follow Christ. What that means is we can look at that doctrinally and say, man, devotionally, what can I learn from that today? What can I learn from that today? And here's the the three things that we're going to learn. Number one, we have, to, we have to learn that biblical disciples have to count the cost of relationships. We have to count the cost of relationships. Look at verse, verse 25. There went great multitudes with him. Remember, the offer of the free feast. Come sit at the table, right? And he turns to this multitude and he said to them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters and his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now listen, all of those relationships are the most important relationships that God gives us. As a matter of fact, these things are good things, right? The Bible tells us in Psalm 127, man, children are a heritage of the Lord. That's his reward. It it tells us in in Proverbs 18 and verse 22, men, I'm pitching you a softball right here, whosoever findeth a wife findeth a good thing. Yeah, I was trying to help you, man. God says your wife is a good thing, and you obtain favor of the Lord. And so listen, God gives us uh, wives and husbands, and, and he gives us children, and these things are blessings. Why is it that God is saying in this passage that you have to hate those things to follow him? What does that even mean? And again, if we compare Scripture with Scripture, as we get into the Pauline epistles, Can I just tell you that Paul has some strong words about all of these relationships? Ephesians 6, he tells us that children are to obey their parents in the Lord. Not to hate your parents. Now, you may hate your parent, but you need to obey your parents. Parents, I'm just trying to help you, man. I'm just just here to help today. That's all I am. That's all I'm trying to do. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor. Thy father and mother. It doesn't say hate your father and mother. So is that a contradiction? Is the Bible not clear? Look at, look at Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Titus 2 and verse 4 it says that the young women need to learn to love their husbands and love their children. Wait a second. Jesus said hate. Paul said love. Which one is it? Yeah. And one's doctrinal. And one's devotional. And don't miss that. Don't construe the Bible. Matthew 22, God even tells us that we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. So here's the question that, that, that really comes up in this passage. And I think it's the devotional application of this passage. But it's the question that we must consider in lieu of following Christ. Who do I love more than Jesus? Who do I love more than Jesus? And listen, I think everybody in this room, I truly believe this. I think everybody in this room loves Jesus, truly. I, I, I believe that. I think that. I, I honestly believe that. Here's the question, though. The question isn't, it, do you love Jesus? The question is, who do you love more than Jesus? So let me give you the Old Testament, I think, illustration of what, what God is doing here in Luke 14. Genesis 29, you have the story of Jacob and Rachel and Leah. And you know, Jacob had, had these two wives, and, and the Bible says he went in also unto Rachel, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served with him yet seven other years. He served Laban seven more years for Rachel. 
The Bible says that when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Translation, Leah was hated. The question is, and and by the way, if if you struggle with that, Leah sure did have a bunch of kids for somebody that was hated. (laughs) I mean, I'm I'm just saying, like... Pretty fruitful lady for somebody that was hated. I'm just saying. You go read the Bible and figure that out. I don't know. The issue is, the issue is, who do you love more? Who do you love most? And that determines who, who you love less. And, and listen, the issue is for us as a, as, a, as a follower of Christ, Christ has to have all of our love, man. We can't just love Christ. We have to love him the most. That's the point, right? Matthew 10 and verse 37, we, we read this earlier. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. God, God wants you to love your father and your mother, just not more than him. He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. God wants you to love your children. You should. You just can't love them more than Christ. And, and I know, man, I, I know I'm, I'm on, you know, eggshells right now, but if we're not careful, the relationships that God gives us as a blessing and a reward, if we're not careful, will become idols in our heart. And the reality is, the answer to this question, who do I love more, reveals whether or not I'm a believer in Christ or I'm a disciple of Christ. The answer to that question reveals that. And so here's the, here's the takeaway, and get it. Prioritizing a relationship with Jesus Christ puts all other relationships in their proper place and perspective. That's a lot of P's right there. Prioritizing a relationship with Jesus Christ puts all other relationships in their proper place and perspective. And I want to give you Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18 because God's word tells us because of who Christ is. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. And because he is who he is, in all things, he might have the preeminence. Here's what that means. Christ is superior to all. He's above all. He's better than all. He's over all. And if that's true, and it is, man, it is. If it's true, then he has to have the preeminence in my life. He has the preeminence positionally because he's God. He is from the beginning. He's the maker, creator, sustainer of all things. He is the firstborn from the dead through the power of his resurrection. He is the head of the church. And because of that, he has to have the preeminence, there's only one spot for first place, and it's his. And, and how that relates to us as disciples is this. Here's, here's what I mean. When I personally have a right relationship with Jesus Christ, God enables me through that relationship to be the husband that I'm supposed to be to my wife. But I have to have that relationship right first. I have to be a disciple of Christ. In other words, I can't be the husband that I'm supposed to be. I can't love my wife like Christ loves the church when I don't have a right walk with Christ. If he doesn't have the preeminence, I'm not a proper husband. Man, how how can I love her like Christ if he doesn't have the preeminence in my life? can't. I won't. Now listen, men, I love you. But man, we have to be careful in our marriages because, because if we're not careful, God tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he gives us a warning. And he says, you know what, if you're, if you're not married, you actually care about the things of God, how he may please the Lord. He, he says in verse 32, I would have you with, without carefulness, he that is unmarried, he that's unmarried, careth for the things that belongeth to the Lord, how he may please who? The Lord. Verse 33, here's the warning. But he that's married careth for the things that are of the world. You got to be careful, man. 
How he may please who? His wife. And, and, and dudes, like, love me and, and hear this, but, but I know how dudes think, so I, I like to be just talked straight to as a man. Listen, it may seem like it now, but you're not going to stand at the judgment seat of your wife at the rapture. It may seem like that now, but you're not going to stand at the judgment seat of your wife at the rapture of the church. You're going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ. And so my admonition and encouragement to you is, put Christ in his rightful place of preeminence and concern your life with pleasing him as a husband, as the leader of your home. Now, if you're not careful, and if he doesn't have the preeminence, you'll get caught up in caring for the things of the world, and you'll get caught up in caring on how to please your wife. And I'm not saying that you can't please your wife, and I'm not saying that you can't, you know, do the things that she receives as her love language and all that. I'm not saying any of that. What I am saying is if Christ doesn't have the preeminence, you're already, you're already losing. You can't be an effective husband and a biblical husband without Christ having the preeminence. And the, the danger will be that you care for the world and you care for pleasing your wife instead of pleasing Christ. Okay, ladies, I gave you a break, but here we go. Wives, if you have a right relationship with Christ, God will enable you and equip you to submit to your husband as unto the Lord. So listen, when Christ has the preeminence in your life and you're walking in submission to his lordship, you can mirror that in your marriage relationship. But how can you do that when Christ doesn't have the preeminence? You won't. Why? Because, because you're not walking with Christ like that. How could you walk with your husband like that? And, and, and I'm just pitching it out there, man. Uh, maybe the problem isn't your husband. Maybe it is, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's Christ's preeminence in your life. You know, children, young people, teens in this room, and preteens in this room, listen, God has a call on your life to obey your parents and to submit to them and to honor them. You know why some of you struggle with that? Because Christ doesn't have the preeminence in your life. You have set Christ at a position lower than first place. And, and many times as young people, we tend to put our, I say we, like I'm young now. Like back in the day, I would have been known to put myself in that place of prominence. And preeminence, because I'm going to take care of myself, what I want out of life, what I want out of relationships, what I want out of this world. Listen, I have, I have totally focused on myself, and that takes Christ out of his proper place. And listen, if we don't have him in his proper place, we can't obey our parents and honor them because we don't obey Christ and honor him. And so, man, it's important that we settle the issue of preeminence. There's a dude in 3 John chap, chapter, well, there's only one chapter, 3 John verse 9 named Diotrephes. And this dude, man, on record in the Bible forever. Here's what God's Word says about him. Diotrephes loveth to have the preeminence. He wanted to be the big show, man. He wanted to be above all. And God rebukes him in the Word of God eternally as wanting to have the preeminence even more than Christ. Man, if we're going to be biblical disciples, it's going to cost us relationships, but 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 really, when we get the right relationship, everything else falls into order. Everything else falls into perspective when Christ has the preeminence. Number two, biblical disciples count the cost of cross-bearing. And I know we're, we're quick on time, so let's just work through this really quick. Look at verse 27. So then he says, okay, after he deals with the relationships, he says, Whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Again, there's a literal application some people in that tribulation period are going to be called to be faithful even unto physical death for following Christ. Colin and I were having this discussion yesterday. I try to run all my sermon ideas through Colin, and if, if it's like talking to that wall, I, I try to change because, you know, Colin's like the filter. I don't know if that's good or bad, truly. I probably should run it through Cody instead. So I just see Colin more like he won't go away, so I just have to, I just start puking stuff on him. 
But we were talking about this point yesterday, and, and, and the question came up, I wonder what's harder. I wonder if, if having to lay down your life physically would be harder than the spiritual cost of dying daily. And, and I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. I, I would like to think, I don't know. I, I don't know the answer. I do know this. I do know this, that once you do it physically one time, you're done. But guess what? Spiritually, if I died to myself last week, that doesn't count for today. If I died yesterday spiritually to my flesh and, and to myself, and I bore Christ's cross yesterday, that doesn't help me today. Paul, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. Man, it's a daily thing. It's a daily thing, man. He says in, 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 in Philippians 1, verse 21, for him to live is Christ and to die is what? And again, I think, I think there's a spiritual application to that, but also a physical. Like, Paul wasn't really worried if he lost his physical life. As a matter of fact, he actually had a desire to depart and to be with Christ. And that's why I say, I'm not so sure if the spiritual cost of following Christ far outweighs just the physical cost. I'm not so sure. Don't, don't quote me on what I said I, or what I didn't say. I'm just, I'm just saying that this is something that has to be reckoned in our life daily. And so, and so God gives us these two illustrations in this passage to illustrate what he's talking about because, because this is such a high calling to follow Christ as a disciple, not just to be a believer and to eat the free bread of life, but to actually be a disciple of Christ it's so costly. He gives two illustrations. Number one, he gives one of, of building a building. And he, and he explains it in verse 28. He says, Which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not that down first and counteth the cost? Anybody in here built their own house? Has, has anybody like did that? Yeah, that's a nightmare, isn't it? Like I've heard that, that is like you don't, you don't hardly recover from that. Like you're forever scarred from that. It's, it's just a difficult, from what I understand, it's a difficult experience. You have, to, you have to sit down and get the blueprints and pick out the fixtures, pick out the plumbing and pick out all the different things. And then you got to change all the things while you're doing it. You got to deal with the contractors that don't show up and all those different things. So listen, it's, it's painful. His point is, listen, you would never start a building project without sitting down and counting the cost, whether or not you can finish. If you do, you become a mockery because you'll lay the foundation but then you don't finish it and other people look and, and we used to you know my mom lives out in the county and and like man we would see people that started a building you know they buy a piece of land because you can live better cheaper out in the county and, and they would buy a piece of land and they would put a foundation of a house they're going to build a house and then you see that foundation and you're you're like oh a house is about to go up and you drive it like a month later no progress like three months later, no progress. Six months later, no progress. Nothing going on. There's a foundation, but there's nothing else. And you kind of ask the question, man, did they run out of money? Did their contractor, you know, go away? I mean, what happened? You got a foundation, but it's useless. It's just there. Listen, salvation is our foundation, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You have a foundation if you believed in Christ. God's established a foundation in your life through the gospel, but God wants to build on that, and he wants you to build on that. So, so our foundation is salvation, 1 Corinthians 3, 11, for other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. And I'm thankful that when we get saved, God puts a foundation in our life. But can I just tell you, that's not all God wanted to do with you, and that's not all God wanted to do with us. So, so the second key is this, what we build on that foundation is discipleship. It, it's, it's the working out of our salvation, building upon the foundation of the gospel. And, and as Paul deals with the judgment seat of Christ in 1 Corinthians 3, he says this, If any man build on this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. You don't work to get saved. People ask me, do you believe in works-based salvation? I like to mess them up a little bit. Yes, it's Jesus' work on the cross of Calvary. But man, it's free to me. 
Does that make sense? Like, it's not my works at all. I can't do enough, work enough to be right in God's eyes. God had to do that work himself. But once he saved me, he called me to a work. He called me to be a, a disciple, and he called me to build on that foundation. So Paul's teaching us through the judgment seat that, man, we're called to build on that foundation of the gospel. Getting saved is free. But listen, living a life as a disciple, man, it's going to cost. It's going to cost. And, and, and if you built a house, you, you remember looking at the numbers thinking, oh, my goodness, this is a lot of money. Yeah, it's going to cost. Nothing in this life that's worth anything is, is, is without cost. And this man that began to, to build, he was mocked because he didn't sit down and count the cost. So here's the key. Just take this away and we'll, we'll get done quick. Sit down before you stand up and build. Concerning discipleship, some of us need to just sit down and consider what it's going to cost to truly follow Christ. I get really nervous, man, in our church when we talk about discipleship so much that everybody just thinks, man, it's just a little class, take a few lessons, meet with a few people. This thing, man, it makes me nervous because what you're asking is to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. And biblically, what that means is it's going to be a high cost. And it's better for you as a believer to sit down and consider what it's going to take to build on the foundation of the gospel in your life. Does God want that for you? Yes. You want that for you. That's still up in the air. It's going to cost you. The second illustration he gives us is, is bearing arms for battle. And he talks about this king that has another king that, 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 that's making war. And he says, What king goeth to make war against another king and sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is a great way off, he sendeth ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. So, so spiritual growth is a building process. But secondly, spiritual maturity is a battle. It's a fight. And can I just tell you, listen, you get saved, you get saved, you got the free bread of life, thank God for that. And you start coming to church, and you start getting plugged in, and then all of a sudden, man, you realize that your flesh is fighting against you, and this world system is fighting against you, and maybe just maybe even the devil himself is fighting against you. Listen, if you don't sit down and consider and consult what it's going to take to be victorious, you'll never win the battle. I used to watch a ton of MMA, probably spent way more on MMA fights than I should have back in the day. I called it ministry because I would invite church people over. And so we'd, we'd grill out and we'd watch MMA fights. And, you know, the headliner would always be this huge fight, but they announced the fight like months earlier, right? Like so-and-so is going to fight so-and-so. And then, and then before that big match, they would show all the training and all the training camps and all the, all the sparring and all the different stuff. Nobody showed up to the main event without being prepared. Unless you're like Mike Tyson or something like that. I think he did that a few times and still won because that was a bad man. But, but in, in other words, the rest of us have to train for the battle. And listen, as a Christian, as a disciple of Christ, the second key is this, man. We need to sit down and consider the cost before we stand up and start fighting. And all through the scriptures, man, and I don't have time, but, but when Paul wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, he talked about the ministry and the fight that Timothy was going to face as a warfare. He encourages Timothy, man, fight a good fight. War a good warfare. You won't war a good warfare if you're unprepared. You won't war good if you're not a disciple. But it's going to cost you to be a disciple. Okay, last point, we're done. Biblical disciples count the cost of Christ's faithfulness. And the last verse says, So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath cannot be my disciple. Again, man, the cost is so high. It's going to cost you everything. It's going to cost me everything. But man, can I just tell you, it's cost versus worth. You've got to figure out, man, you've got to figure out, is it worth the cost? All those things that we talked about earlier, man, your house, your education, man, your automobile, your, your engagement ring. I'll give you a free one, like, that was worth it, okay? Like, if anything, you should be saying, I just wish I made more so I could give her a better one. That's what you should be saying, right? 
Did that help? Did I, did I land that one? Okay. I just, I got, some, I got some ground to recover right now, so I'm trying to, yeah. Man, when you consider this thing of following Christ, it costs everything, but the return on the investment is everything. So Matthew 19, again, just for time's sake, very quickly, man, Jesus promises those disciples, literally, Peter, the rest of the dudes, listen, I know you forsook all, but I'm a good God, man. I'm a faithful judge. Look at, look at Matthew 19. We'll actually pick it up in verse, verse 27. He comes off this discourse of how rich man can't enter into the kingdom of God. It's hard for them to enter into the kingdom of God. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter, verse 27, said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken how much? I mean, the call of a disciple was to forsake all. And Peter, man, right, wrong, or indifferent, you know that dude's always listening and sometimes he's always, he's always like, hey, I, I just want to let you know, we forsook all. How about us? And Jesus is like, he didn't rebuke him. He's like, what should we have there for? Jesus answered unto them, verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory. This is all second, second coming context, millennial context. When he will sit in the throne of his glory, you shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone that hath forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. Man, here's the point. And again, there is a tribulation doctrinal context. You don't inherit everlasting life. You have eternal life in Jesus Christ. You already have it. But here's the point. Man, God's so faithful that when he called us to be a disciple, he knew what it was going to cost. But he's also such a good God that he guarantees reward. He guarantees to be faithful that we would never, we would never ask the question, was it worth it? You see, we think about that with stuff like our home. You get in one that has some problems, you're like, oh, is, is this worth it? get in a car that you thought was good and then stuff starts breaking you start asking the question is this worth it can I just tell you man Christ is worth it he's worth it and what he's worth is forsaking all for so here's the question what is worth forsaking for Christ's sake because that's the question that determines whether or not you're going to be just a believer in Christ or a disciple of Christ I mean, Paul gives us this knockout punch right here at the end in Philippians 3. And he talks about, man, who he was in his flesh, man, a Pharisee, a Pharisee, man, of the, the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, man. He was a Hebrew homeboy. I mean, he was a Pharisee. He was full of zeal. He persecuted the church. And he was blameless in the Old Testament law. But he says, you know what? Those things aren't where I find value. I find value in the person of Jesus Christ. He says in, in, in verse 7, But what things were gained to me, I counted those loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of most conveniences. Nope. Some things. Nope. I've suffered the loss of all things. And do count them, I'm, I'm accounting them dung, that I might win Christ. I'm going to close with a question because I know we're over. Listen, what's the most expensive thing you've ever bought? Do you regret paying for it? The most expensive thing that you can ever buy is choosing to be a disciple of Christ. It's counting the cost of forsaking all. And having Christ as the preeminence in your life. And as much as I want to convince you, you have to convince yourself that he's worth it. Some of us need to sit down. Stop the busyness and sit down. You need to sit down with the Lord. You need to sit down with a pastor. You need to sit down with a discipler. And you need to map out what truly following Christ looks like. Because it, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you your relationships because Christ has to have the preeminence. It's going to cost you bearing 
Christ's cross because our old flesh still wants us to control us. And it's going to cost you trusting and believing that Christ is really worth it all. And he is. But you have to believe that. The only way you believe that is you get your nose in that book and understand it. And believe it. The high calling and the high cost is worth it. Because Christ is worth it. Let's pray together and we'll dismiss. Father, we need you this morning. God, thank you. Man, I'm challenged. Uh, Lord, you, you continue to work in my heart. And I, I want to be, be a disciple. I want to I understand what it takes to follow you. God, you know, I know in our culture, and especially even with me, man, I, I look for deals all the time. I look for, for deals. And there is no discount on, on biblical discipleship. There's no 50 off, 70 off percent. There, there's no deal to be made here. It's all or none. God, I want, to be, I want to understand that, and I want to follow you with my life, and I want to, I want to understand what it takes and, and be willing to forsake anything that's in between me and you. Have, have you to have the preeminence in my heart. God, I pray that for all of us today, Lord, that we understand what it means to follow you and position you rightly in our heart just so that we can be a disciple of Jesus Christ. God, we love you. Thank you for your word, and thank you for strengthening us. We ask it in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.